0: This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who
1: care. Welcome back to Dyscam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson, and we're with Professor John Freen of the NRCD, who is a parasitologist. And we're busy talking about uh, malaria. Sorry about the short uh, break over there. And we're asking now that it's the malaria transmission season, what exactly is malaria? And how is this transmitted, and why is it the transmission season?
2: Okay, so um, malaria is a, a single-celled uh, parasite, which in the human host infects the uh, red blood cells and uh, replicates or multiplies inside the uh, red blood cells and causes various uh, degrees of internal organ damage, uh, which can lead to severe uh, malaria and in some cases, uh, fatal malaria. The, um, the source of the infection for humans is the insect vector host, which are various uh, species of Anopheles mosquitoes. And the parasite originates, uh, in the mosquito and is uh, inoculated when a, an infected mosquito feeds on a human host introduces the parasite um, it uh, gets into initially uh, the liver of the human host um, where it undergoes a multiplication cycle, and then gets leaves the liver and goes into the red blood cells and there it does its major multiplication and uh, and the um, that is the source of the uh, the disease of malaria in in humans. The season for transmission in southern Africa is from September to May, and um, that's really related to uh, conditions which are suitable for breeding of the vector mosquitoes. So when it's uh, the temperatures are higher and there's more rainfall, uh, the mosquito population increases and um, therefore the risk of malaria transmission uh, is much higher. Uh, I should say that in other parts of Africa there may not be uh, such a distinct seasonality because there the breeding conditions for mosquitoes are good uh, the year round. But for us in southern Africa, um, our winters are too cold for for extensive mosquito breeding, hence the seasonality uh, of malaria
1: is it the cold, is it the t- temperature or is it the rainfall i know the mosquitoes breed in water so is it the rainfall as well as the temperature
2: it's, uh, it's a combination really um, and um, the uh, and of course uh, in South Africa the uh, rainfall is linked to um, is linked to the climatic conditions uh in, in summer. So it's really a combination of temperature and and rainfall and uh, humidity, which uh, is required by the mosquitoes.
1: Okay. And just to clarify, you mentioned that mosquitoes are a vector. Just explain to our listeners what a vector is. So the mosquito picks up the parasite and transfers the parasite to the humans and without the mosquito the parasite wouldn't be able to get into the humans is that correct?
2: Uh, that's exactly right. A vector just refers to um, an insect, uh, usually a blood feeding insect which because of its feeding uh, habits uh, uh, transmits uh, a pathogen and um, you know, mosquitoes can transmit uh, other pathogens as well. Um, so malaria is just um, it's just one of, of several mosquito-borne um, uh, diseases.
1: Where does the mosquito actually pick up malaria from? From feeding from people positive?
2: Yeah. So the malaria uh, parasite um, forms infective stages for the mosquito host inside the bloodstream of humans. And then those are picked up by um, a susceptible mosquito uh, when it feeds. And so therefore... Um, malaria requires the two hosts: the mosquito hosts and the human hosts, in order to um, to maintain the um, uh, to maintain the parasite.
1: So, is the mosquito negatively or adversely affected at all by the, by the parasite?
2: Um, the mosquito is largely uh, unaffected. Um, it uh, remains infected for as long as it lives, which obviously for mosquito is not very long. It's a matter of weeks and possibly uh, a month or so. And during that time, it can uh, feed uh, multiple times. Now, the reason that uh, mosquitoes need blood is to get the protein in order to produce eggs. So without feeding on human blood or or other sources of blood, uh, not necessarily human, um, the mosquito can't uh, can't reproduce.
1: So where did this parasite come from initially? If, if the mosquitoes acting as a vector, how did the paras- parasite make its way into humans or into mosquitoes originally? The
2: actual organism that it evolved from um, would have been around millions of years ago. Um, over time of evolutionary time, uh, the parasite or that organism has um, adapted uh, to become totally dependent on on these um, on these hosts um, and um, We should add here that uh, there are a number of uh, malaria parasite species. Um, some of which are, uh, cause more benign uh, disease. Um, one of the reasons that uh, Africa is so uh, affected by, badly affected by malaria, is that the predominant species in Africa is uh, Plasmodium falciparum, which is the, um, the most dangerous species, the one that's likely, most likely to cause a severe disease and, uh, death if it's, um if it's not uh, diagnosed and treated, uh, promptly.
1: Okay. You said that now the mosquito bite, takes the parasite, it bites the human, it goes into the liver and then it goes into the red blood cells. Uh, what symptoms does it cause when it's in the red blood cells?
2: Okay, so from the time that the mosquito bites someone and introduces the parasite until symptoms start appearing is called the incubation period. And that is the time it takes for the parasite to go through the liver and start replicating in the red cells. And that's usually um, 10 to 14 days. During that time, although the parasite is active inside of the body, uh, there are no symptoms. Once the red cell cycle starts, the uh, person uh, starts feeling ill but in a non specific fashion so it's typically called a flu like illness uh, with headache chills fever and um, muscle aches and joint aches and pains so a really non specific
1: and what, uh, what causes a search interrupt? what actually causes those flu like um, symptoms is it the body's rep- uh, response
2: yes it's um, to do with the um, immune uh, response uh, to this foreign um, animal inside one, um, we get the inflammatory or the immune system uh, producing um, molecules which are involved in uh, activating the inflammatory response. And that's what gives rise to these um, so sort of non-specific uh, symptoms.
1: How is malaria uh, fatal? What is it, or or dangerous to the host? What does it actually do inside the red blood cells?
2: Parasite alters the um, characteristics of the red blood cells and um, makes the outside of the red cell sticky by exporting uh, proteins to that outer membrane of the red blood cell. Those proteins cause the infected red cell to become sticky and to stick to the small blood vessels in our internal organs. And that leads to interruptions or uh, impediments in the blood flow in those organs and also causes um, organ dysfunction. And um, that leads, if uh, the, the infection is not diagnosed and treated in time, to uh, serious um, complications Involving our internal organs And so those organs are uh, The brain And involvement of the brain leads to cerebral malaria uh, The lungs And that can lead to um, a re- Respiratory impairment uh, The kidneys Leading to renal failure uh, The liver Producing uh, liver damage um, And uh, jaundice uh, the spleen, uh, the gut, basically all our internal organs are affected. And the more seriously they're affected, the more likely the person is to get um, severe, complicated, or even fatal malaria.
1: We're going to take a shorter air break. We'll be back after this.
2: This is Medical Monday brought to you with
0: compliments of DISCAM, pharmacists who care.
1: Welcome back to This Game Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Professor John Free, who is a parasitologist at the NRCD, And we're busy talking about malaria. We're talking about what happens to the actual body and what happens to the organs. What happens to the actual red blood cell uh, that the malaria parasite is in? Well,
2: uh, once the parasite has grown and reproduced in that red blood cell, it, uh, it ruptures. And... Um, uh, leads to release of the parasite, which then goes on to infect more red blood cells, and that rupture of the the red cell uh, contributes to the anemia of uh, malaria because we get um, a, a loss of those of those cells and uh, Another uh, contributor to anemia is the fact that the bone marrow um, is suppressed. Uh, by the malaria parasite uh, infection. And uh, all components of the blood produced by the bone marrow, so those are the red cells, the white cells and the platelets, are all um, decreased in a typical uh, malaria infection. And that's what we um, uh, refer to as a pancytopenia. And it's, um, the degree of uh, bone marrow suppression is an indication of the seriousness of uh, of that particular malaria infection um, in that patient.
1: So, maybe, can you describe first the course of the disease? You just said you first said that from the in the incubation period, from when the host is uh, bitten, that uh, they have a flu-like illness of headaches, pain, fevers. And um, what comes next?
2: So, uh, to some extent, it depends on what species of malaria we're talking about. Um, what I've been describing up till now has been the um, the more severe one, the one that we we're really worried about. That's falciparum malaria. For some of the other species, um, for example, uh, Plasmodium vivax or Plasmodium um, ovale or malaria, um, the uh, they uh, tend not to produce the severe organ damage, and we get persistence of those um, fevers and chills. Uh, people may actually feel better in between episodes of fever, and those episodes of fever might come at um, at a fairly uh, distinctive regular intervals, depending on what species uh, we've got or, or the patient has got um but um, we need to be most careful about um, plasmodium falciparum malaria because as as mentioned that's the one that uh, potentially causes organ damage and uh, leads to severe and fatal malaria so going on so moving on from the the flu-like uh, early symptoms of of falciparum malaria uh, with the um, uh, uncontrolled uh, replication of the parasite um, the person gradually gets uh, in fact not not so gradually um person quickly uh, becomes um, uh, weaker um, the um, and the uh, involvement of the organs leads to um, leads to a uh, of signs and symptoms of um, uh, decreased um, uh, mental uh, alertness. So going on to drowsiness and eventual uh, unconsciousness and coma. In terms of the lung involvement, um, the person uh, in, experiences increasing difficulty in breathing um there's fluid accumulation in the lungs, and uh, that can uh, eventually lead to uh, respiratory failure. Um, as this is happening, the kidneys are, are losing their function, and we get the um, the physical uh, manifestations of um, renal failure uh, with a decrease in in urine volume uh, increasing darkness um, of the urine uh, the person's um eyes may start looking yellow as uh, jaundice increases as a result of uh liver uh involvement and inability to deal with the um the uh the uh, ruptured uh, red blood cells that the um, that the parasite is producing. Uh, the spleen often in, enlarges and um, and uh the person may also uh, experience um uh, uh gut involvement, there may be um, um, you know malaria can present as as diarrhea and then this can all progress to multi-organ involvement, multi-organ failure, a shock-like syndrome, um, which can resemble um, a a severe bacterial infection or severe fungal infection. And eventually, uh, the body's defenses may be overwhelmed and unfortunately, uh, death may be the the consequence. So here I'm talking about uh, a patient. The worst-case scenario, where the diagnosis is missed or not thought about, uh, or treatment is delayed or incorrect treatment uh, is given. So, if the diagnosis is is thought about, um, the correct laboratory tests are done, the um, the presence of the parasite is detected, and treatment is started promptly, then. None of these horrible complications uh, will occur, and the patients will almost invariably make a rapid and, um, and a complete recovery.
1: How do we make the diagnosis of the malaria infection?
2: So the traditional way is to uh, visualize the parasites in the patient's red blood cells, and that involves taking a blood sample, uh, making, uh, blood films on a slide, staining them and examining them under the microscope. And actually looking for the parasite inside, uh, the red blood cells. At a certain, uh, below a certain concentration of parasites, this can be quite uh, difficult to spot and, um, they take a, a really skilled micros- microscopist to detect a very low level uh, of infection so people have devised um, uh, other tests which um, are able to uh, assist with the diagnosis one is to look for um, uh, antigens released by the parasite in its uh, uh, during its um, life stages in the in the human host, and um, these are available as um, rapid diagnostic tests, which uh, involve just a drop of blood put on a, um, a little strip, um, and um, the presence of antigen is detected by um, detected by this method. So these are called the rapid diagnostic tests or rdts and obviously uh, because they don't involve the requirement for a, mi- a microscope or staining or a skilled microscopist they are a great help in um, making an early diagnosis where those facilities uh, are not available so particularly in um, in areas where um the uh, laboratory may not be at hand um, uh, they are they are useful then for uh, the the drawback of those rapid tests is that they uh, may not be as sensitive as um, as as good microscopy and uh, depending on the um, the type of test um, some of them will not uh, pick up the non-falciparum um, infections, and then nowadays, uh, for really difficult uh, infections where uh, possibly um, the uh, the parasites are at very low levels, say following treatment, um, the uh, we have the we can apply modern molecular methods uh, to detect the parasite. But these are really only reference. Uh, suitable for reference laboratories and um, and uh, not uh, necessarily done routinely.
1: Okay. We're going to take another short air break and maybe we can talk about uh, treatment and prevention when we get back. We'll be back after this.
0: This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of DISCAM, pharmacists who care.
1: Welcome back to DISCAM Medical Monday. I'm your host, Ian Derson. We're speaking to Professor John Free there's a parasitologist at the NICD and we are talking all about malaria and uh, we spoke about infection and, di- and diagnosis. What about uh, treatment? Well, I guess we can go into prevention and public health and b- medication just now, but let's talk first a bit about uh, treatment. What drugs do they give? When do you treat as an inpatient? When you do you treat as an outpatient?
2: So fortunately there are uh, highly uh, active and effective drugs uh, available for um uh, patients with malaria the um the a major issue around uh, drug treatment of malaria is the uh, development of uh, resistance which has occurred in the past and has um led to the development of drugs which are which are more effective. So nowadays, the standard drug treatment for malaria involves uh, a drug group, a group of drugs called artemisinines, which, um, in combination with um, other malaria drugs, um, are almost always, if they're given properly and taken properly, um, highly effective. So this is what we call ART or Artemisinine, oh sorry, ACT, Artemisinine Combination Therapy, and uh, for mild cases, the ACT is, um, is taken orally, um, in a short, uh, uh, course of treatment over three days or so, and if the uh, dosing instructions are followed uh, properly um, they are highly effective. So once the patient has reached the stage where they are have more serious disease and may not be um, absorbing drugs very well from their, from their uh, intestine uh, we use um, intravenous therapy, again also one of the artemisinin drugs and again, we've got a very highly effective uh, a drug which um, has many advantages over the older antimalarial drugs like uh, quinine. Um, we now have a drug which is uh, very fast-acting, uh, affects all stages of the parasite in the human host, and therefore uh, gives rise to that uh, quick action. And has very few uh, harmful effect side effects so uh, again, if this is given um, uh, adequately in adequate doses and soon enough, um, the patient is very likely to um, get uh, proper uh, respond properly to to treatment the The problem is when diagnosis is delayed. And patients are experiencing those organ involvement, um organ dysfunction um, at that stage, the malaria is much more difficult to treat, and even very good active treatment um, may not um, uh, may come too late. So the message is um, prompt and adequate treatment. Uh, is always a uh, priority for for malaria
1: let 's talk about prevention now. Um, maybe you can take us through the public health prevention and you can take us through then uh, prevention with uh, drugs for people who are going on on holiday
2: so this, the strategy for pre- prevention of malaria uh, really depends on what the exposure risk is if the exposure risk is very small, which it is for uh, most parts of um, the transmission area in in South Africa, then um, anti mosquito measures are the main um, uh, the main strategy for preventing malaria. And there are a number of things you can do to prevent mosquito bites. Uh, you can put on repellents. Um, you can cover up uh, exposed skin after uh, sunset. Uh, you can have air conditioning or fans in your uh, in your room and um, you can um, uh yeah that that covers really the um, anti mosquito measures for more uh, risky uh, exposure to malaria where the transmission is higher than anti malarial prophylactic drugs um, should be added. So anti-mosquito measures should always be used, uh, but we can add uh, chemo, uh, chemotherapy or chemoprophylaxis rather uh, to that where transmission risk is much higher. And certainly in South Africa, the uh, Kruger Park area, uh, the recommendation is during the transmission season, in addition to anti anti-mosquito measures, um, uh, prophylaxis, uh, should be used.
1: And you said that was from, uh, from September till May or August till May.
2: Yeah, yes. Uh, the peak, uh, being uh, around about, uh, December, January and going into February.
1: Okay. Um, do you want to maybe tell us just um, about the prophylaxis, the chemoprophylaxis that people take? I know there used to be uh, horrible drugs like uh, larium and uh, doxycycline and the uh, new drugs like uh, melanol with uh, minimal side effects. Maybe you can just bust some myths while we are here. Does Should people always take those prevention, um, even in the low-risk season? And is there any... Uh, harm in taking chemoprophylaxis? Does it hide any symptoms or delay the onset or, or presentation of malaria?
2: Okay, so let's deal with the, the drugs that are available um, first. So um, we have, at the moment, uh, because of problems with manufacturing and supply, um, mefloquine, trade name Larium, is not available in South Africa. So we really only have two options, and that is doxycycline and um and melanol as you mentioned so doxycycline is highly effective but it can't be used by everybody so young children uh, pregnant women uh, can't use doxycycline and it does have um some side effects uh, as well uh, which um uh, one has to always balance the the risk of um of side effects with the um the benefits of um, of the, the prophylaxis uh, melanil is um, uh, 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 has very few side effects it's easy to take and uh, its main drawback is um, is its expense um, uh, it's quite an expensive and quite an expensive drug but again um, one has to look at the um, at the benefits it uh, it affords. Um, certainly, uh, getting a a bad case of malaria is going to be a lot more expensive than in terms of costs of treatment than uh, spending money on on prophylaxis. So, one of the enduring myths is that uh, prophylaxis somehow masks the infection. And therefore, uh, some people believe that they would rather get the infection, be diagnosed and treated rather than having the so-called masking effect. Now, this is a a really dangerous myth um, because it can lead to um, delays in treatment and diagnosis because one is not always – in a place where those are readily available, uh, the standard of diagnosis and treatment uh, may not match, may not be optimal. I'm thinking about here, you know, traveling outside uh, South Africa, and even um, prophylaxis, which is may not be optimal, it will still generally uh, suppress the infection. Uh, and delay the onset of severe and complicated malaria. So, uh, the, um, if it is available, uh, prophylaxis, uh, should be taken in the face of a significant risk from, from malaria.
1: We're going to take another short ad break. And when we come back, uh, I'd like to talk maybe some public health strategies. We'll be back after this.
0: This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of DISCAM, pharmacists who care.
1: Welcome back to DISCAM Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson and we're speaking to Professor John Free who is a parasitologist at the NRCD. We've been talking uh, for the past while about malaria. And uh, Professor, can you tell us what about if people who live in in endemic areas people who live in parts of Africa where malaria is um they all year round or they live in mozambique they live in the Kruger park can they take uh can they take prophylas the whole year round or what uh what should they do what public health strategies are there? you mentioned that the amount of uh, four hundred thousand deaths a year what can be done about this
2: okay so um uh, clearly it's not uh practical for people to take uh, prophylaxis on a permanent basis, um, both from a, a side effect point of view, a, a cost uh, effectiveness, a cost point of view. Um, so uh, much of Africa's population in below the, the Sahara is exposed to malaria from an early age. And by early, I mean even before birth in that so the pregnant woman is often um is, is generally uh, exposed and this uh, intense early exposure to malaria while it unfortunately leads to a high rate of uh, mortality in in young children those that survive have a degree of immunity to malaria And therefore, they can tolerate the infection, and once after the age of, if they survive to the age of five or so, um, they are basically immune to the uh, severe complications of malaria. So while they may still get sick, they may still develop fevers, they may even have low-grade infections uh, on a permanent basis, they generally uh, do not die from the complications of malaria. So those are people living in areas of intense transmission, which is not the case for our population in South Africa and basically in in, in other Southern African countries as well, where we are all highly susceptible uh, to malaria. We are all at risk from, if we get the infection, of getting severe, complicated, or even fatal uh, malaria so you 'll understand that this, the obvious strategy here is a vaccine, and uh, much uh, effort and expense has gone into uh, researching uh, vaccines for malaria, but unfortunately, the parasite is very elusive and very difficult to vaccinate against, and no highly protective malaria vaccine Uh, has emerged Um, there is um, there has been only one vaccine which has uh, reached the stage of large scale uh, clinical trials and shown some success but even that is only partial uh, success in that it will protect about um, about a 30% protection in highly endemic areas from uh, severe malaria so it's not a vaccine that's of any uh, practical use to um, to travelers and uh, we're still uh, waiting for that type of vaccine uh, to be developed but it looks as though it's going to be a really difficult task and so um, the main uh, uh, strategy for um, those endemic areas in in Africa is to try and control malaria through uh controlling the uh the vector uh, or at least preventing uh, preventing access of the vector to um, to the population and outside of south africa that's largely done by Providing populations with insecticide impregnated bed nets uh, It's particularly targeting children, because as I explained, they are the um, the main susceptible uh, group uh, in terms of um, uh, risk from malaria. Um, so, ITNs or impregnated um, insecticide treated nets. Are a major strategy and have contributed largely uh, to a decrease in in malaria um, across much of Africa. So, uh, you know, things have things have improved, but uh, we still have this major burden of malaria in South Africa. The main control strategy, from the public health point of view, has been uh, vector control in the form of residual insecticide spraying of houses. And the rationale for this is that the important malaria vector species have the habit of resting indoors once they have fed. So if you can expose them to insecticide inside houses, where they rest on the walls of, of rooms, uh, you can... Uh, get them there, uh, you can kill them and suppress the uh, vector population uh, in that way. Now, it's not 100% effective because some uh, malaria mosquitoes prefer to bite outside. Um, some of them are not exclusively human uh, biters. Uh, some will bite humans and animals. And therefore, indoor residual spraying, as it's called, IRS, is... Uh, is not 100% effective, but it is um, largely uh, highly effective. But um, certainly visitors uh, to our transmission areas in the high season uh, must take additional uh, precautions, as was mentioned, the anti-mosquito measures and, uh, if necessary, um, uh, prophylaxis.
1: Just to wrap up, well, we're going to take a short break and then I want to just chat to you about um, Larry at this time. How has the pandemic affected um, the disease progression or the presentation or um, uh, just the disease itself? will be back after this.
0: This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care.
1: Welcome back to Dyscam Medical Monday. Uh, last few minutes, I was speaking to Professor John Frean, who is a parasitologist at the NRCD. We've been speaking about malaria, and I was just asking the question about uh, the global pandemic that we're in of COVID-19. How does it affected malaria worldwide?
2: So that's that's an excellent question and something that uh, we must um, bring to the attention of your listeners. Um, with the intense focus on on COVID-19, uh, we run the real risk of um, malaria and possibly other infections being missed in terms of the, the um, sharing of um, symptoms between uh, COVID and, and other diseases. So in the case of malaria, both COVID and malaria can in the early stages present uh, similarly with, um, Uh, fever, headache, non-specific aches and pains. And if the focus is purely on COVID, you'll understand that uh, we're concerned that some cases of malaria uh, may be missed. And um, even in Kauteng, although it's not a malaria transmission area, we do get a large number of malaria cases every year in terms of people who've been infected elsewhere but travel to Gauteng, uh to live, uh, work. Um, in fact, Karting has the third highest number of malaria cases diagnosed um, every year. The last aspect is uh, on the control programs, uh, which employ large numbers of, of people in the field, like uh, the spray men that do the indoor residual spraying, uh, because we discourage uh groups large groups of people coming together uh they've had to uh, modify their procedures and instead of large groups of training for example uh, to do it in smaller groups and this is um you know this has led to some disruption of uh, the malaria control program um for, for good reasons but nevertheless um they uh, may adversely affect our uh, malaria cases uh, having said that, I think because there's been far less travel across our borders, um, there's been less imported malaria from our neighboring countries. And, um, as you know, that's been a positive uh, aspect of the pandemic, I guess. But as travel becomes more relaxed, or restrictions on travel have become more relaxed, uh, we can expect um, more imported cases, I would say, over the next uh, few months or so.
1: John Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us this week. We really appreciate your time. And I hope the listeners got as much out of that as I did. Thank you for joining us.
2: It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you very much for joining us. We will be back next week with another guest on Just Care Medical Monday. Have a good week and stay safe.